Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. On today's episode, I'm speaking with Stephen Jones. Stephen is a brand new associate in Foley's Dallas office focused on bankruptcy. And when I say brand new, I mean truly brand new. At the time of this recording, Stephen has not even been with the firm for a full month. Yet, I was able to rope him into this show because we connected as a part of his onboarding. During our conversation, he shared with me a bit about his path, and it was interesting. So, of course, I had to say, Stephen, you know I have this podcast. But as you'll soon hear, Stephen had a bit of a delayed entrance to higher education. In between high school and then attending community college and then moving on to get his bachelor's, he was a mechanic. He was an independent distributor for a bread company. He was a waiter. He was a bartender. So I had to have him on the show to talk about his path. Also, Stephen is the rare glimpse in that normally, particularly for the law students listening, you never get exposed to the brand new, brand new associates. By the time you join a firm as a summer associates, the new associates have been there for a while. So I'm very excited for everyone to hear what it's like to start new at a law firm. He also talks a little bit about what it's like starting during a global pandemic. But overall, I think you'll be impressed by the perspective, the poise that Stephen has, and also his fantastic advice at the end of this show about being present. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Happy to be on with you. I am really excited to have you here. I am excited to have everybody on the show. But as I was telling you before we started recording, you are that rare glimpse into the brand new first year. You're less than a month into Foley. So we're going to talk all about that. But before we do, can you give me your professional introduction? Sure. So my name is Stephen Jones. I work in the Dallas office of Foley and Lardner. I'm a litigation associate. More specifically, I work primarily, I'd say, in the bankruptcy practice group. That was kind of the thing I was brought on to focus on when I started here. Before I came to Foley, I was uh, in Austin. I did a one-year clerkship down there, and uh, I started here just a little bit less than a month ago, so I haven't been here very long. That's fantastic. So we have a lot to talk about, but as usual for this podcast, let's start at the very beginning. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? I'm originally from Fort Worth, Texas, which is just a little bit west of Dallas, where I live now. So it's about 30 minutes from here. I grew up in Fort Worth for the most part. But uh, I moved up to Ohio when I was a kid and spent eight years up there with my family. My dad got a job transfer, so we spent some time up there. But uh, eventually, we made our way back to Texas. And yeah, so I grew up right next door right next door to Dallas. But it's kind of interesting because there's a big kind of rivalry between Fort Worth and Dallas. So here I am, a Fort Worth guy that grew up out there, but now I live in Dallas. So my friends and family in Fort Worth like to give me a little bit of a hard time about that, but uh, I let it go. I had no idea there was a rivalry, but why would I? I'm very, very Midwestern <laughs> through and through. I get in trouble with the Dallas-Houston thing because occasionally I mix them up. Uh, but now I'm I'm learning another 
a couple other places I should mix up. So I appreciate you flagging that for me. Although I do want to ask, so you spent this eight year, so an eight year stint. That's more than a stint, I would say. And in Ohio. So what, what ages, when, when to when, when was that? That was when I was six years old, we moved up there. So I started first grade up there and moved back to start eighth grade in Texas. So six to 14, I believe, uh, both my parents grew up on, on farms and my dad's actually originally from Oklahoma, my mom from Iowa, and they wanted my uh, sisters and I to have that experience. So we made our way up there and we uh, lived in a small town and Got some great experience, uh, some good memories up there. And then- did you have a? Was there a farm, or was it more of like a? I don't know, rural kind of. Yeah, tell me more. Just tell me more. Well, I was in 4-H. I, I had some animals that I raised for 4-H, and and I wouldn't say it was you know like a working farm, but I definitely say it, we we lived in the country. My dad did do some farming with with some of his friends up there, but I wouldn't say we grew up on like a like a cattle ranch or anything. Right. And what kind of animals? I mean, you now I have to ask what they were. I showed sheep and I, I showed chickens. Those were my two uh, my two projects. <laughs> Sorry, I should not laugh, but but it wasn't a farm. But you raised them. I did, I did, and then at the end of you know after raising them, I mean from birth all the way to uh, taking them to the fair and to show, and eventually selling them at the end, and then doing it all again the next year. So I know that listeners at this point have realized you don't, you never quite know where I'm going to take this, but I just have to push this thread a little bit more. Okay. It's one thing to raise chickens, but raising sheep to me seems like a whole different level of, uh, is animal husbandry even the right, the right term? But that's, those are larger creatures. Yeah. I mean, I kind of, I guess, compare it to maybe raising cows or pigs or something like that. Like I say, every, every year we'd, we'd go through like a breeding process and, uh, I'd be there, you know, whenever they were born and, and all the way up to, to show time and then sale time. So it's amazing on the not farm on the not farm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. I digress. I will move forward. No, that was a great point in my life. So I love talking about it. Absolutely. That's fantastic. But so at what point did you know you wanted to be a lawyer? And I'm jumping way ahead here with the purpose of probably backtracking, but how did we close the gap between a, you know, animal husbandry, having chickens and sheep. So now you are an associate at Foley and Lardner. Wow. So yeah, a lot happened in between there. Um, so like I say, we came back to Texas. I graduated high school in, in Fort Worth. And then, you know, after high school, I took a break as far as schooling. I really didn't know what it was I wanted to do. And I had some some interesting jobs before I eventually made my way back to school. And I started at a community college when I was ready in, in Fort Worth called Tarrant County Community College. It's been a few years. I should just stop you right here. I want to know a bit about the jobs. But let's sure. just tell me more and how long and just yet yeah, give me details. Right out of high school I, for probably about a year, year and a half, something like that. I worked at a, at a box chain automotive place where I, I changed tires and batteries and, and oil. So I was kind of like a level one, level two mechanic. And I did that for, uh, I'd, I'd say about a year, year and a half. After that, I uh, I got into the bread business. I actually ran a bread route for about that same amount of time. So every day I'd go to the warehouse and, and pick up my my load of bread and load it in my truck. And I have, you know, like a set list of clients. So I was an independent uh, distrib- distributor for a large bread company. I did that for about the same amount of time. And 
And so, yeah, eventually. We have to stop for one second. I have questions, of course. Sure, sure. But I guess what I should share also with our listeners is so we connected because as a part of your onboarding at the firm, you know, I, I call up all of our new associates to introduce myself, tell you about diversity and inclusion at Foley. And I don't know how we got here, but you you mentioned that both the like mechanic experience, the the bread delivery experience. And all I said to you was, Stephen, have you heard of this podcast I'm doing for the firm? That's I want right. to have you on it. Yep. So I had a loose understanding of, of, you know, that you had an interesting path. But I am curious if you could just share a little bit how you went from, like you said, level one mechanic to the bread business. How did How did that come to be? I guess doing the mechanic thing, I, I eventually was, I was like, ah, I'm not sure if this is for me. And so I started looking for, you know, other opportunities and, and my brother-in-law, my sister's husband at the time, he was in the bread business for this company and said, well, have you thought about doing this? And so, you know, it was an opportunity that I kind of jumped at and it was, it was good money for, for a guy my age. And, yeah, and you were what, like 19, 20 at the time? 19, 20. Yeah. Yeah. yeah young guy and, and making decent money. Uh, like I say, I mean, I had my own truck as an independent distributor for this company. So it was just basically you're running your own business. So it was a lot of responsibility at the time, but you know, I took it on and that is a lot. And actually I want you to break that down a little bit because it is, that is very different to really be, you know, owning this truck, running your route. Like how did you decide to take on that responsibility? Was it daunting? I don't know. I just, I want to know more about that. At the time, it seemed like a like a good opportunity and, and a chance to make more money and a chance to to really actually run my own business. And it sounded, you know, like a basically the company sets you up with with a with a list of clients that you service. You know, so you buy mm -hmm. a route from them. You you have a truck that you make payments on. At the end of the year, you file your own taxes. And you know, if you want to take time off, you need to hire somebody to run your route. Run your route. Do that for you. And so, how big is the route? What is that? What was that like? I know this is years ago, but I'm just, I'm so, I have not talked to someone who ran a bread delivery route, so I can't help but probe a little bit. I can't imagine. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I'd say probably 13 to 15 clients I had. Some I visited every day, others, you know, every two days, something like that to restock and, and fill their orders and rotate on the shelves and stuff like that. But yeah, of course, you know, holidays were, were super busy time for us. So is it grocery stores that you're predominantly? Yeah, I had a, I had a few grocery stores on my route. I had a couple dollar stores, uh, a couple restaurants, things like that. So again, just depending on demand, that would be how often I visited them. But but yeah, they set me up with the clientele, and then there was room for expansion. If if you heard about you know a small restaurant or something like that, you could try and generate business that way. So it was fun. It was uh, it's really I interesting. It. Okay, yeah. so at some point, it sounds like you moved on. So tell me now we can keep we can move forward. I've I've exhausted my questions about the bread business. <laughs> so yeah, uh, there eventually came a time where where I thought, you know, this, I, I would rather get an education and see where that road takes me than break my back for the rest of my life and, and go that that route with it. Not that there's anything, you know, wrong with going that path. I just wanted to see what else I could do. And so I got out of the bread business. I started at a community college in, in Fort Worth, like I say, Tarrant County. And when I was there, I was waiting tables and bartending at a fine dining restaurant, a seafood and steakhouse. And I did that for about three and a half years and got my basics all taken care of. And then I moved to Colorado and that's where I actually got my undergraduate degree. And I decided to go up there because I just, I just wanted a, a change of scenery and Having lived a couple of places in my life already, I, I wanted to 
see other places. And when I visited there, I just loved the mountains and it all kind of lined up with what I wanted to do. So it sounds beautiful. I've never, I've never visited Colorado, but it sounds really beautiful. And I want to ask more about moving from the community college to college or to undergrad or finishing your undergrad in Colorado. But I am curious, I don't want to glean over the three and a half years, as you'd mentioned, working in fine dining, because I'm wondering if there's any, you know, things you learned about people or experiences that are at all or sharing. And I say this because I don't think you would have had a chance to listen yet, but a recent podcast, one of your colleagues in, in Houston, who actually spent a number of years as a bartender. And it sounded like a really interesting experience in terms of her exposure to to people and to humans. So I was wondering if there was anything similar there in your your three and a half years. I would 100% agree with the the value. I presume that the that that person talked about that you get from those experiences. Like like I say, I, I waited tables and I and I bartended at the restaurant where I worked. And I think you develop those soft skills in picking up on on people's needs and how to communicate and body language. And I mean, I think there's something really to be said about getting those experiences and and especially in a fine dining setting that was really the only restaurant i had ever worked in so i just kind of got thrown to the wolves <laughs> at the beginning you know it's it's at the highest level so people really expect you to to be on your toes and and to put the best product you can forward so yeah i i loved it and i i think that that really helped me develop the skills i i needed to to just be able to conversate with people and, and to understand different backgrounds, you know, me having a very different background than a lot of the people that came and ate at the restaurant. So, so yeah, I, I think it was extremely valuable for me. Thanks so much for elaborating on that. I also have this working hypothesis for this podcast. And the, and the thing is, so I'm somebody who went straight through college to law school, like minimal work experience. You know, I could mention a few things, but, but certainly not the same as spending many years out. But I also do just have this working theory that none of that time is wasted professionally. And for you, we will talk about this. You've just started your professional career as an as, as an attorney. But I will look forward to hearing from you in the years to come as to how those experiences reading people, like you said, the quote unquote soft skills, which are actually extremely important, despite the fact that we call them soft, I have a feeling that those experiences are going to serve you well. So I just love to highlight them. But anyway, where I stopped you. We're in, you're in Colorado. Where are you in college and what is your major? Uh, I attended school at, in Fort Collins, Colorado, which is in northern Colorado, about an hour south of the Colorado-Wyoming border. And I went to school at Colorado State University. There, I majored in business communications and got a minor in entrepreneurship. So you just knew law school. Doesn't sound, I'm just kidding. It didn't sound like you were headed to law school yet at that point. No. <laughs> what was your thought process on, okay, I'm in college to do X and what were you hoping to do with those degrees? Well, I wasn't honestly sure. I just, I just knew that continuing to get an education was going to serve me well. And I knew that I wasn't going to get where I wanted to go without getting an education first. And so as I'm there, you know, I, I enjoyed myself. I, I, uh, I started taking different classes and, and I guess how I landed on wanting to go to law school was some of the public argumentation classes and rhetoric that I was requi required to take for the uh, communications degree. I started really enjoying that and being able to, to argue on both sides of, of the coin and, and see different perspectives. And, and so that was kind of where it started for me as far as thinking maybe law school might be something I'm interested in. 
All right. So walk me through that. What's the timing between college or finishing college and then either deciding or going to law school? The decision itself, I think, kind of came towards the end. I I graduated actually in December of 2015 with my undergraduate degree. And I started studying for the LSAT shortly after I graduated. But I guess kind of leading up to that, I actually interned with a criminal defense attorney in Fort Worth in my hometown. And over the summer, I was with her and I, I really enjoyed it. And I thought, you know, why not at least try and see what happens? And so I, I came back to school in the fall and finished up that semester and continued to, like I say, study for the LSAT. And I took it. And then I started figuring out well, where do I want to try to go to school? And eventually I landed on Texas Tech University School of Law, which is in West Texas in Lubbock, at where it's very flat, what you think of typically when you think of Texas with the tumbleweeds and you know the desert, basically. My Texas stereotypes, you're like, this is where they apply. <laughs> That's, that's exactly. I mean, it was the first time I've ever seen a tumbleweed was in Lubbock, Texas. Just, I mean, blown right across the road. So, I don't know that I've seen a tumbleweed in real life now that you say that. So I'll have <laughs> tell me what's law school like? You start law school. Is it what you thought it would be? Was it hard? Was it easy? How is how was that first, let's say first semester or so for you? If you remember, you might have blocked it out. I don't know. <laughs> well, a mixture of both, I guess, you know, it was it, law school was, I mean, it was hard, you know, the first semester, I, I, I re- honestly, I didn't know what to expect. All I knew was that in every TV show and every movie and every person I talked to that had gone to law school, they were like the first year's rough and mm-hmm. they were right, you know, so it's, it's learning how to read cases and learning. I, well, I, re- I remember being at home one night and, and I remember thinking, I have no idea how I'm going to be able to read everything that they want me to read every single night. There's just no way. There's not enough time. And eventually, you know, you start to get faster and you start to see the pattern of how to read a case and all this stuff. Yes. I think I'm laughing because, you know, so for me at this point, I'm 13 years out of law school. And, uh, but you brought back some memories where you have this realization. And if you're somebody who college wasn't particularly hard for, I think it actually makes the transition harder where you're like, oh, I'm going to be studying all the time. You realize like, oh, I have to do this most of my waking hours. That's how, yes, that's how you find the time. You're just doing it all the time. Yes. And I think another thing, at least that was special about it for me and, and that I think made it bearable was you know, they put you in sections at w- where I went to school. And I think that's that's pretty common from what I've heard from other people. And so you you get bonded with, with your section and you kind of feel like you're not in it alone and you can discuss your agony with your, with your classmates. And so I think that makes it bearable, at least it did for me. Well, and then how did you, and I'm asking you this in particular because you're closer to this experience than a lot of the attorneys that I've had on the podcast. How did you figure out how to do law school, how to do well, or how to study? Like what were, what were some of the things you learned or did? I think talk, talking to professors after class was helpful. You know, if I, if there was something I was unsure about, or professors would always say, my office is open, you know, you can come and discuss things with me. I think that was very helpful. I think talking to older students was also helpful. I've always been big on the mentor-mentee uh, relationship. and And so I've I've always, you know, tried to ask questions if I wanted to know information. And so that that was the mindset I went into it with was why not use the resources that that are available to me, whether that be from older students or faculty, 
uh, whatever the case may be. But I think it was also trial and error was just <laughs> part of it, you know, figuring out the study habits that'll that'll work for me and and all those sorts of things. So I'm not sure if it's well, you just said actually a lot of really important things, and I'm gonna reflect them back to you and unpack them a bit. So for the law students that are listening, hopefully they really can hear it. I get a lot of law students who reach out to me through LinkedIn in particular, because I'm very active there. And I'm still quite active at at my law school, which is the University of Michigan. And um, so of course, I have not been back on campus in a while, given current events. But I've said that exact same thing you said about actually take your professors up on the office hours. And like the professor actually means it. Because I do think, and I think also it can depend on the, sometimes I think when you're maybe a little bit older going back, it, it can be a little less less daunting or just like kind of the maturity of the law student. But some people find that really, I don't know, they're, they're afraid for whatever reason to show up to that professor's office hours and to ask. But it, it I mean, it, it really is, if, if there's a little bit of a cheat code to law school, that's probably one of them. You might as well go ahead and get it kind of directly from your professor's mouth. Some of them will even show old exams, not all of them. I completely agree with that. And I think another thing that's easy to forget whenever you're in law school is that at the end of it, I mean, mean, these professors, all of them have JDs, all of them are are attorneys. They're, They're going to be in some sense, your colleagues at some point. And so, I, I mean, I have professors that I still keep in touch with to this day that, that are people I lean on. And so that's, and I really, I really felt that maybe it was where I went to school. I'm not, it could be at other law schools as well, but I really felt that my professors had a vested interest in seeing the students do well, because then that means the school does well. And, and, you know, and, and they were just always there and available if you did have those. And so I think that's something. you well, And I wonder, do you have any examples of a professor whose office hours you went to or something that was really helpful just to make it I don't know, even more concrete for the law students listening? If there was one professor, I, I guess that I that I really felt that with it was Professor John Kramer, who was my 1L contracts professor. He was an old school guy that I th- think by the time I had him, he had been teaching at the law school for something like 46 years, long time. There, and he would make you stand whenever you'd present the case and ask you not Hold to Hold on. Stand. I'm sorry. He would make you actually stand up. So it wasn't just yeah. getting cold called. It was and stand up. Wow. That is a different level. Okay. Yeah, sorry, I distinctly remember the first time that was the first time I had been cold called in a law school class. I dodged the bullet there for a while. And, and, you know, torts, I was good, CIPRO, I was, and then contracts that happened. And it's him. And I remember thinking I was going to pass out as I'm standing up. But <laughs> towards towards the end of the semester, I started really liking contracts and everything kind of started clicking. And he had mentioned to us that there was this uh, banking kind of journal thing that one else could get involved with. And I knew I wanted to try and improve my writing. And so basically what you would do on this journal is write little case blurbs, like summaries of, of banking and commercial law cases that had been issued. And he would handpick them and then they'd go out to this banking law community in Texas. And so I went up and spoke to him one day and I said, how can I explore my interest in contracts more? And he's like, well, you, you should write for my journal. And I did. And and so we kindled a friendship and that lasted. Uh, he, he passed away in, in during my second year of law school, but that lasted until he, he passed away and he was always there and, and a, a great guy that I came close to in a short amount of time. So I definitely recommend going and seeing those professors if you feel that there's one that you click with. 
That's a fantastic story. And I would take it even a step further and say, even if you don't click with them, stop by because law school is a tremendous investment that most of us are, you know, paying for ourselves, you know, perhaps through through student loans. And even if you have a lot of scholarship, it's still a huge investment and it never hurts to ask. But another thing you said, Stephen, was you learned what worked for you. And I actually think that's really powerful as well, because um, from what I recall, even though it was some time ago, I think it can be very easy to forget that you still ultimately may have a different learning style than someone else and try to learn in a way that doesn't work for you. So I don't know if that's worth elaborating on, but that was, I think, a really, really helpful advice. I mean, I think that's exactly right. For me, what ended up working for me was using study aids, you know, reading them, reading concepts several times over, but presented in a different way. Like I feel like I was pretty, probably pretty lucky at my law school and in the library, we had several different uh, brands of study aids that were available for students to check out. Of course, around finals time, those became pretty hard to hard comply. To but, but yeah, I think for me, it was, it was spending time on the material as much time as I needed and, and reading it a bunch of different ways and building an outline and, and all that sort of stuff. So there's, there's, a number of different ways to go about it. And I saw a bunch of people go about it different Different ways, ways. all of them be successful in it. So I just, you're bringing back memories for me, which is, I think I was maybe a second year law student when someone said these words, which stuck with me, they were, you don't have to outline. And I remember my brain, I was like, what? You don't have to outline. And they were like, study in ways that work for you. And I was like, what? Everybody's outlining. But I actually took that advice. And so, I mean, I was still figuring out ways to condense and manipulate the information. I ended up teaching my now husband a lot of law school (laughs) because I figured if I could explain the concept to him, it meant I, I, I learned it. Um, And I also had a professor who's still teaching at the University of Michigan, Sherman Clark. And I just, I just think this is hysterical, but he would make fun of us as law students because he was like, I don't understand all this outlining business. You have an outline. It's called the the table of contents in your book. Like you don't need to outline. (laughs) I I remember things like that as well. (laughs) He just, and he also had a line where he was like, I just think, and I'm please warning, don't do what I'm about to say. I'm saying this because it's a joke. I just have to add that disclaimer. But he also once said, I don't know, I feel like you might as well just try to take the bar exam once without studying. Because what if you pass? Then you saved all this time. And if you fail, now you know what to study. <laughs> like, don't, please nobody do that. Don't do that. But I, in retrospect, it was very funny that that was his advice. And I, and I remember it. I did not do that. I did not do that. But it was funny. So anyway, I'm sorry. I stalled you for a long time just talking about the ins and outs of law school. But so you get your feet under you within law school. At this point, are you starting to hear about law firms? Like, how does this work? How do you end up at Foley? Tell me about that. The way I ended up at, at Foley, my 1L year, I guess it was in the spring of 1L year. At the time, this was before the Foley-Gardier merger, which happened in, in 2018. Gardier was, was a big recruiter at, at Texas Tech. And so there were a couple of attorneys that came and gave a presentation during this spring semester of my 1L year. And they were from uh, Gardier at the time. And I remember thinking when, when they're giving this presentation, these are people that I think I would get along with. Uh, the presentation was about basically what not to do during your 1L summer as, as you're an intern. So they were telling you know funny stories about things that had happened with summer associates and stuff like that. And I just really felt like it, I resonated with them. And 
I actually followed up with one of the attorneys and, and sent him an email and said, you know, I really enjoyed the presentation and, you know, I introduced myself to him and he actually offices right next door to me now, I guess it's a, everything kind of came full circle. circle, but, but yeah. So whenever I saw Gardier, it was one of the firms for OCIs. Of course I, I jumped at it. And again, the guy's name is Tom Scannell. Tom was one of the attorneys that uh, came out to interview at Texas Tech. And, and of course, we hit it off. And then summer of 2018, I was at then Foley and Lardner after after the you know merger had happened. So in between me doing on-campus interviews and me coming as a summer associate, that's whenever the merger happened. So. Well, and so tell me about your summer associate experience. Normally, I don't ask a lot about this because a lot of people that I have on the show are quite removed. But... What was that like being a, a summer associate for? At that point, it was then Foley and Lardner. I absolutely loved being a, a summer associate. So I, I jumped in, I guess, uh, did a cannonball head first. You know, I, I got an apartment here in Dallas that was a temporary stay. It was furnished because I wanted to see what it was like to live in the city. And I got to do some some really awesome work with some with some great attorneys. And of course, we had fun, you know, at, during the nights and and on the weekends. And so. I got to do everything from work on motions in Lemony to write memos for partners on oil and gas issues and other uh, witness examination issues and help with deposition prep and, and just all sorts of, of random things. It was really a, a broad array of work that I got to do. And, and I, I loved it. I had a great experience. All right. So then you go back to school to finish your, now we're to your final year of law school. So I don't know. The last year of law school, I think, is a little tough, particularly when you already maybe know where you're going afterwards. But, but tell me about wrapping up law school. And I know you also, it looked like you had the opportunity to, to clerk as well. So if you could talk about that as well. Well, so I actually got the clerkship offer while I was a summer associate with, with Foley. So I got a call from Justice Guzman down in Austin. She's a justice of the Texas Supreme Court. Uh, I got a call from her in early July and asking me if I was in, interested in uh, interviewing for a clerkship. I put in an application probably a year and a half, I would say a year and a half before that. I, I guess that's right. It was long enough to, to where I, I thought that that ship had sailed. And so when I got the call, I was shocked and I got the clerkship offer. So coming back to law school for my third year, I knew that I was going to be down in Austin for a year. And then I was going to be at Foley after that. So when I came back that third year, my main focus was was to stay involved. I, I was involved in trial teams and involved with our uh, intra-school program that puts on uh, advocacy competitions for, for first and second year law students. So that, those are my main focuses was to keep doing well in school, but also to enjoy myself as much as I could before I got out of there. Well, and as we've been talking, I, I I usually have people pulled up on LinkedIn as we're speaking. So apologies, I just pulled you up. I also see that you were on Law Review. So how was that in terms of time commitment or, I don't know, any Law Review musings you could share while we're, we're talking? I Well, I definitely recommend, you know, try applying for a Law Review, doing your write-on or whatever the process looks like. I enjoyed it. I think it it set me up. I mean, legal writing is just a completely different animal. I remember that was one of the first things that blew my mind about law school was, wow, I did not know that lawyers write so much. 
and completely rewiring your brain to this legal form of writing that's clear and concise and you're, and you're getting the message across. That was a big, I guess, a big help for me was being involved with law review and constantly being exposed to it. And so, yeah, I, 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 huge time commitment, but well worth it. I ended up getting published. And, and so, yeah, it was definitely worth it. And I'm curious how, and obviously you don't have to be on law review to, you know, get a clerkship or to get something out of your clerkship. But I'm wondering if what you did in that year clerking, if the preparation from law review really helped. So maybe comment on that and then talk a little bit about what you did as a clerk. Yeah. So I think law review definitely helped prepare me for clerking because believe it or not, the blue book, that citation manual that they make you, you know, you cite the rule for the corrections that you're making in a law review article. That's the same thing that you, that you're going to use as a clerk. I mean, the judge is going to want you to put out work with correct citations and you're doing it the right way because ultimately your judge is the one that's putting their name, you know, on the document and they're having you look at those things. And so, yeah, I think it was enormously help, helpful for me in that regard. As far as, you know, things that I did while I was clerking, I I drafted several opinions, took the first stab at it, and then I worked collaborative, uh, collaboratively with my judge and our staff attorney and my other co-clerk to take that product and elevate it and get it to where it needed to be. And actually, one special thing about being with the Texas Supreme Court is that the clerks get to sit in on conference. So after a case is submitted to oral argument, all the, the judges, they'll meet once a month and they'll discuss the petitions for review and the cases and say, well, you know, I think I'm this way on a case or, you know, I, I like that writing, but m- maybe we can make this adjustment. It's, it's where all that voting and, and discussion happens and, and the clerks actually get to sit in there. And I think there's only one other uh, court in the country where that's the where that's the norm, and it might be Kentucky, I think, but Texas, we were the first. So, but it was special. I, I really enjoyed it, and and I got to form a great relationship with my judge, and I see her being a mentor for the duration of my career. Oh, that's fantastic! Thank you so much for sharing about that. All right, so now I have to ask about something that maybe is a little bit more traumatic, which is the bar exam. And the fact that, and I'm a bit out of the loop because given current events, so for those who listen to this in the future, we're recording this in October 2020, where I think most of the country is still very much affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. And a lot of bar exams were actually affected as well. I don't I don't quite know what may have happened in in Texas, but I'm just wondering if you have any, you know, commentary on that that process or maybe anything that was unique about it in light of just recent events. Well, for me, I was, I, thankfully, I mean, I, I feel for the people that have had to to go through all the, the hoops with with COVID and, and the bar exam getting changed. I mean, I know in Texas, it was changed several times, the format on, on what they were going to do. And and so I, I remember how stressful a process it was just to prepare for the bar exam after graduating and, and buckling down. So I graduated in May 2019. I took the bar at the end of July in 2019. And so I think I just can't imagine having to having to go through that amount of stress as as a new graduate. And oh, and I'm so sorry. I forgot that you've been clerking, so you didn't just take the bar. So apologies there. But keep yes, keep talking. <laughs> but I mean, it just I I can't imagine not only not knowing what the job market's going to be and and offers getting pulled and things getting shuffled around, but then not knowing how your state's going to handle the bar exam, if you're going to have to go in person, if it's online, if there's some sort of apprenticeship program. And so 
for, for all those that had to go through it, I mean, it's, I can't imagine and I feel for you. How did you approach bar prep? What, I mean, I'm assuming you took Barbary. What was your, what was your approach? Kind of just did what, what Barbary said or anything unique to how you approached the test? I just kind of tried to stay on pace with what Barbary wanted me to do. You know, I would say treat it kind of like a, a nine to five job, just study during the day, take the nights off. And, and I guess after the, after the 4th of July, I really started to, to ramp things up because the, you know, it was only three, three weeks and some change away at that point. So I started to focus more on, on topics that I felt a little shaky about and do more essays, you know, practice essays and things like that. But, but I just generally followed the Barbary structure. Everyone that I spoke to about it, I was, I was very worried about the bar exam. So I, of course, asked everyone's advice that I could find. I'm like, what, you know, what, what did you do? And they're like, just stick to the program. You'll be fine. And I, and I think that that's, that's pretty much right. They, they've got it down to a science. So Paul yes. says you should be okay. We should say that more slowly because I really do think in a lot of ways, this episode is very helpful for law students that are listening The stick to the program. You'll be fine. That's right. Part I think is important. And I actually had the same approach as you. I treated it like a nine to five job. Maybe some days it was more than from nine to five, but generally studied a lot during the day, followed, you know, whatever Barbara told me to do at the time, except for some of the, like, I think I don't necessarily break down test questions the way they may be recommended, <laughs> but I made a lot of flashcards actually. I did that as well. And that was one thing that even in law school that, that really helped me, especially with subjects that I was shaky on. And I think an- another thing is if, if you're, a, if you're a little bit of a worrier, you're a stressor, People would tell me, well, you know, just, just hang it up. Just don't, don't study for the rest of the day. If you're the type of person that studying is going to make you feel better because you're not going to be able to turn it off anyways, then study some more. I would do that sometimes. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I think that you also need to draw the line and give yourself a break every now and then and go to sleep. Well, and sleep is actually where you kind of create oh, I don't know, memories (laughs) so that you can hopefully remember what you've studied. But I do remember handwriting. Well, I hand wrote some flashcards. I probably ended up printing and like, I don't, and the thing is, I realize I'm very moved. I'm kind of like, I don't know what the kids are doing these days, (laughs) but the act of making those flashcards. And then when I had something cold, I could set it aside and I would literally just carry around the things that I was struggling with until I wasn't struggling with them anymore. But I do think that's such an, an angsty time for so many people that, you know, I hope just hearing a couple of people say, if you study in a way that you're able to learn and digest information, you'll be okay. is helping some future law student <laughs> who listens to uh, this discussion. But anyway, so we're winding down our time a bit, but I don't want to gloss over the fact that, as we said, you just started at the firm about four weeks ago. So I'm not sure if you have any reflections on on what that has been like. I mean, it is, of course, very different right now because of the pandemic. And, you know, a lot of people are still working remotely. But you are a brand new first year at, at Foley. And I, I, I definitely have to give you an opportunity to, to, to speak a little bit about that. Well, I think it's definitely been unique in the sense that so much of what I've what I've done has been has been virtual. That was the same thing with my clerkship is in March, whenever things really, you know, whenever we saw that COVID was coming here and, and things started to, to shut down, I, I worked remotely from March until the end of my clerkship in, in early September. So starting here, it, working remotely wasn't anything new, but it, I think it has been a, a little tricky to, to navigate, you know, how am I going to, 
to meet people? How am I going to let people know that I exist? And, and one way I've been able to do that is, is to come into the office. For the most part, I, I've been coming in most days just because I got so tired of working from home and, and, and the Dallas office, we're, we're starting to see quite a few more people coming in and, and the COVID restrictions kind of getting dialed back a little bit. So, but, but it has been strange because I know different areas of the country are, are, are going through, you know, different things. And so, for example, you're, you're, at, you're at home right now working from home. And, and so it's, it, it's been very different, but it's, it's been awesome so far and everyone's been so welcoming. And one cool thing is that I think we're, we're seeing that this job can be done remotely. And I think that that shows that maybe we can re- rethink some things that we thought had to be a certain way. So, but, it, but it's, it's been awesome so far. I'm enjoying it. I'm really, I was just nodded so much as you said that, because particularly within the legal profession, there's so many things you would have said, that is impossible. You could never get, oh, I don't know, name all the AMLA 50, 100, 200 law firms to, to, to go to remote work on, you know, just turn on a dime. We all would have thought that was impossible yet. Yet we did it. And it's really been tremendous. The other thing you said, which is advice I have for you and to those listening, but advice that I've been giving throughout the pandemic is reach out to people. So whether this is, you know, I don't know, a first year who's a summer associate at some point, and maybe you're in the office or you're not, I don't know. But I do think back to that advice about going to your professor's office hours, it's a similar dynamic, particularly now we don't see each other, but you're new and you're trying to learn an organization, just send the person that email, right? Because you do have access to the various directories within your organization. If there's somebody who does work that you're interested in, you know, and you have to be judicious about this, right? And tactful, of course. But a lot of people, most people are willing to have that 15 minute, that 30 minute conversation to say hello, to tell you about their practice, and now to keep you in mind down the line, whether it be for opportunities or just the opportunity to meet someone. But it is another thing where you're kind of stepping out of a comfort zone. The same thing is going to the professor's office hours. And I think more of us have to do that. I, for me, obviously, a different capacity because I'm I'm no longer a practicing attorney, but I've had to do a lot of outreach as a result of the COVID pandemic. But anyway, that's just my two cents. But in our final few minutes together, same thing for you, Stephen, that I do with everybody. You know, Either if there's something we haven't covered or just general advice you'd want to give to somebody looking to have a legal career or navigate law school, what are your thoughts? I guess the first thing I would say is it's never too late. I, I wouldn't say that I went to law school super late in life, but I was definitely a little bit older than some of my classmates. And so if it ends up being something that you're interested in, going to law school, pursuing a legal career, then you should absolutely do it. And I think as long as you are willing to put in the work and figure out how what your path is going to be to get there, then I think it's possible 100%. And I think the other thing that I would say as far as advice is, especially as a law student, you get so caught up in, in thinking, what's the next step? You know, if I, if I have this accomplishment, you know, well, what's next? And I think it's important to take time to, to smell the roses, right? To enjoy where you're at and to enjoy those accomplishments as they come. I'm not very good at doing that myself. I am definitely wired to, you know, well, what am I going to do next? What's next on the horizon? And so it's something I really have to focus on. So maybe saying it out loud and giving that advice will help me to, to live it more. But I think it's definitely something important to focus on, especially in the pr- profession that we're in. It's results oriented, you know. So I think it's easy to lose your 
you know, lose yourself in, in that sense. Being present. Yeah. Yeah, that is so profound. So I normally try to wrap these up without commenting on, but I have to with what you just said. One, fantastic advice. Two, I was talking to a law student not that long ago who, much like what you said, she planned her whole career. I think she's maybe a second year now. She had planned her entrance, her potential exit from big law. I mean, and I just had to tell her, I need you to be where you are. I need you to be here now. I need you to take some of that energy and channel it on meeting your classmates, networking with lawyers. I don't, you don't actually need to be focused on what you're doing eight years from now. It's siphoning energy from the present. So I think that's really wonderful advice, Stephen. Thank you. You're like, I know, of course it is. No, no, I, I, I do appreciate it because I just, I saw it so much in, in my classmates. I see it in myself and I, I just think it's so easy to do. And I think it's just the nature of the profession sometimes to to just be focused on what's the next next task at hand instead of sometimes just sitting back and being grateful for everything that's happened. Absolutely. It's the nature of the profession. And I think it's also the nature of people who are attracted to the profession. But what can happen is, like I said, you're siphoning energy from the present. So you're not even necessarily doing the things now to help you get to then because you're so focused on then. But you're absolutely right. Stop being able to stop and smell the roses. But with that, I will wrap it up. And my last question for you, Stephen, is if people have questions for you, comments, can they feel free to find you on Foley's website and shoot you an email? 100%. I am live on the website. So absolutely. If anyone wants to reach out to me, I've always got time. Perfect. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.